Less than 24 hours, Georgians will be under a shelter-in-place order. McDonald, though, said he did not know the man was handcuffed and was trying to use his foot to pin him to the ground so he could be handcuffed. If your friends, neighbors, or local organizations are not complying, report them to us. Howdy, y'all, and welcome to the Free Georgia Podcast. My name is Jake Green. Thank you all for tuning in tonight. We've got a good one for you. I mean, it's the, the, the topic is heavy. But uh, the, it is great to get these kind of stories out there for more people to help with and for more people to hear about and know um, is just a lot of corruption inside the government, um, especially the medical side of things. Um, and so tonight uh, we'll be interviewing somebody from You Are the Power who help who are helping um, a few different families get their kids back from the state who were basically medically kidnapped and taken from them um, without just cause. Um, but before that, if you have any questions about the Libertarian Party of Georgia, what we're doing to spread freedom and liberty around the state, go to lpgeorgia.com to learn more. Um, we have all sorts of stuff, all sorts of resources. Um, you can learn exactly what our platform is. You can learn, um, you can see what kind of events we're, we're having. Um, if there's a local affiliate in your county, you can go to their monthly meetup, um, you can register to vote. You can run for office. You can look at Liberty Watch, which is uh, Brian Allen's project, which basically details out all the legislation that is happening in the state of Georgia and emails it directly to you and to give you a brief summary of what is happening, what laws are trying to be passed or have already been passed um, that will affect you or people you know in the state of Georgia. It's a fantastic resource. Highly recommend signing up for that email. Um, what else? We also have tomorrow night, February 27th, Tuesday, February 27th. We have schooling outside the box from seven to eight 30 PM. It is a virtual hangout. Um, you can get tickets for free if you go to, um, well, I forget what the actual, just go to Eventbrite and search schooling outside the box. Um, I also put the link in the episode description. There we go. That's, that's what I'll do. <laughs> uh, I'm just going to read the description so you get a better, better sense of what it's going to be about, um, aside from me just riffing. So it says, many people would love to homeschool their children but are overwhelmed by the idea. If your idea of home education is providing hours of daily instruction to children seated at desks, feeling overwhelmed is understandable. It doesn't have to be that way. The best education is one that takes place in real life. Join us for a refreshing look at education as homeschooling dad, Anthony Welty, teaches how to raise well-rounded and knowledgeable children in a world schooling environment. Highly recommend. I'll be attending tomorrow evening. Um, so highly recommend that you do as well. All right, y'all. Um, tonight, like I said, we've got a big one. Uh, man named Ryan Ralston, who works for... The uh, You Are the Power here in the state of Georgia is going to come on here in just a second to talk about um, a few different cases that he's been working on here in Georgia involving children being taken away from their parents uh, without their consent, and some of whom have been arrested for child abuse, even though it has been proven that they were not abused. So without further ado, Mr. Ryan Ralston, welcome to the Free Georgia podcast. How are you doing today? Man, I'm doing great, Jake. Thank you so much for having me on. Of course, of course. I had a great time um, listening to your your speech at uh, at the convention this year. Um, 
it also kind of, you know, I interviewed Jennifer uh, a while ago, so I, I knew the story pretty well. And yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 How was, how was your experience at the convention? So that was, uh, it was great. It was my first uh, libertarian party um, convention that I, I was able to attend. There was a, opportunity for me to go a couple of years back but i got sick and wasn't able to attend but um i loved it i enjoyed it um everyone there was welcoming everyone was friendly it was just an overall great experience yeah awesome um well for those who don't know can you give us a brief description of the of the organization you work for and what you do for them sure absolutely so i am the state director here in georgia for you are the power uh it's an organization founded by spike cohen um, if you're familiar with Spike, he was a vice presidential uh, nominee for the Libertarian Party when uh, Dr. Jorgensen was the presidential nominee. Mm -hmm. And so Spike uh, has this 501c3 up and running. Um, so our goal is really and truly is to help anyone on a local issue, um, help them uh, open lines of communication with their elected officials, just help to draw attention to some of these issues as long as they're local. And uh, we approach it from a human respect uh, perspective and human respect uh, standpoint. Everything we do is driven through that human respect. And that's just the way we approach every cause that we undertake, especially here in Georgia. Nice. Um, what does your like day to day look like? Like, what do you do on a daily basis to, to help all this? Yeah. So right now um, we have uh, teams that we have formed and implemented here in the state specifically teams, because we have um, three cases that are three causes that we're actively working on and actively uh, pursuing, all focusing around um, Department of Family and Children's Services, Children's Health Care of Atlanta, and local law enforcement. So we have a team of volunteers right now who are actively helping us um, get these issues resolved. Most of these uh, families, if not all of them, um, at some point have been fractured as a result of uh, a child having undiagnosed medical conditions or in some cases diagnosed medical conditions. Uh, they're brought to the doctor and the child abuse physician uh, says these children have been abused when they have not. And so we've really been focusing a lot of our attention and a lot of our effort on trying to reunite these families. You know, I know you had Jennifer Williams on Mm -hmm. a while back to talk about the the Matt Hernandez and Tucky Hernandez case. And I do have a, an update for that, if you don't mind. Heck yeah, please. Okay. So um, this Friday, there is a hearing in juvenile court in Forsyth County mm -hmm. where we anticipate the judge to um, rule in our favor and allow temporary legal guardianship of the Hernandez children to be passed on to their aunt and uncle, which is a a huge, it's a, it's a monumental step in the right direction yeah. in reuniting the family. So they're actually going to be back with um, blood relatives. And once we get that uh, victory under our belt, we're going to stay focused on having these criminal charges dropped against Matt and Tucky and completely reuniting their family. So everything is moving in the right direction. It's uh, incrementalism is, is not our enemy in these cases. So we're using that into our favor. And so it's we understand that it's a marathon and it's not a, it's not a 5k. So we're, we're probably at mile 24, 25 right now. And so we see the finish line, but we're just not going to stop, stop yeah. chugging until, until the family's reunited. Yeah. I imagine that that can get a little difficult these days, just have, getting people to be patient considering we're in a world of like instant gratification and we want everything like right now, like being able to, to wait things out for a long term and just keep, with that, like you said, incremental progression, just a little bit at a time, just some patience. Um, is that a hard 
thing to keep like in your perspective or, or like tell folks that you're helping, like it's going to be a long yeah. process. Is that hard for them to do as it, well? It is. And I just, I'll put myself in their position, right? So these are moms and dads, husbands and fathers who've had their babies taken away unnecessarily. Like they've been accused of crimes. They simply didn't commit. Um, they've had their children uh, taken away from them, stolen, seized and, and placed in Georgia's foster care system. So they want, results like now, 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 and it's fully understandable in these situations. Like I mm -hmm. absolutely empathize and sympathize with the plight that they're going through, but we have to remind them that we're, we're up against um, a, a government that in most cases is out of control and not only out of control, but they um, simply don't want to listen to reason. And so it's just that approach that we take that human respect approach that we seem to yield the greatest results with. And so we just have to consistently remind the families that we're working with that, you know, we got your back. We're here to support you. This is going to be a long process. We outline that process mm -hmm. from the very beginning during the vetting process that, that we undertake with these families. And so they, they understand. And it's, it's difficult because the team that we have in place, they're fantastic. I mean, they're just absolute professionals and, uh, they're, they're little bulldogs, man. They just want to get out there and do the work and get these families, you know, reunited, reunited as quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. Um, and in some cases, like one of the cases we're going to talk about here in a little bit with Brady and Carrie Timms, they've been held in legal limbo for two years. You know, they've not, they've been without their baby for two years. Um, so it is a long, arduous process. And th the best way to keep these families motivated is just through open lines of communication. Yeah. You know, it's, we're an open book. Um, you know, when, when we take on a case, it's really Jake, one of the most gratif gratifying, uh, uh, phone calls that, that I get to have with these families is when I get to talk to a mom and dad and say, you know, you, your fight is now our fight. Your cause is now our cause. Your family is now our family and your babies are now our babies. And so that's the way that we approach this. I mean, it's just, it's love, it's human respect, and we're going to do everything in our power to restore that. Um, with these families. And that includes uh, calling out government officials, local government officials for their bad behavior. Heck yeah. Way more people should be doing that far more often. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm all about it. I'm all about it. And I know uh, uh, Jenny may have said something in, in the interview with you, Jenny Williams, about uh, she was on the stand in court in Forsyth County. And, uh, you know, one of the state lawyers was, was, was cross-examining her and uh, you know, about some of the involvement with, with you are the power, your environment's involvement mm -hmm. with a case or, you know, something like that. And um, I want to say the defects worker or something, you know, was had, had was on the stand as well and made a comment that she was upset because she had received over 500 emails from people who were con who were concerned about her behavior and, and what was going on with Hernandez case. And, you know, I'm sitting in the back of the courtroom thinking to myself, you know, she's upset that people are holding her accountable. Uh, for her bad behavior and her, and her actions. And the state official is up there complaining on the record to the judge that she received over 500 emails from people saying, you know, like, Hey, you're, you're doing the wrong thing here. You need to start doing the right thing on behalf of this family. So to me, that means our approach to what we're doing is working. You know, if we can get a government official on the stand on the record in open court complaining about the work that we're doing, that's, that's a win in my book. Heck yeah. Yeah. That that's a common trend. Uh, Recently here in Georgia, we've, we've been doing the same thing with uh, the Defend the Guard Act um, that we're trying to get passed here. We basically it's 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 pretty much been proven and shown over and over that the more you email and call 
especially call your local reps that they yes. will listen to you, especially if you get a lot of people to do so. Yes. Um, the key there is to always be respectful and to yes. not make any threats whatsoever. <laughs> yeah, we um, that's that's like rule number one for us. You know, like yeah. if you've seen any of our involvement in any of these cases and causes when we have these templates that we we publicly share and say, hey, you know, please, please email this elected official, you know, please, please let them know your feelings. But we have these templates that are just pre-populated. So you just have to enter your name on there and send it out. But the very first thing that we say is, you know, be polite, be respectful, because, you know, the government officials do like to, to, to claim that they're the victim because they received 500 emails. But, you know, all the emails are respectful. All the emails were polite. All the emails were sincere. They contain factual information. And yet the government officials complain about receiving those emails. So, um, yeah, be respectful whenever you're we're interacting with them because it's... Um, it's that dialogue that sometimes it can get lost in translation when you're when you're emailing someone or texting them. And like you said, picking up a phone and calling an elected official is a is a is a lost art. You know, it's it's something that needs to be done more frequently. Um, it's it's not uncommon uh, for me to be on a conversation or me to be on a phone call with an elected official and, and just remind them ever so politely. Yeah, you know that that uh, they, they are beholden to us and not we to them. And as a matter of fact, the phone that they're talking to me on is, is paid for through my tax dollars. So um, <laughs> that's, that's a, a hard conversation to have. And it it's hard to get people to do that as well. Um, it Cause it seems, I mean, talking on the phone in general, I feel like is, is becoming a lost art or a lost skill because yeah. um, yeah. of how much texting and emailing everybody does nowadays. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I get how I can under. I mean, I've I've made mistakes talking to folks on on the phone, trying to yeah. get them to support a bill or not support a bill or whatever. I've I've misspoken or called them without proper information, and yeah. it's it's embarrassing. And you don't want to be that guy. <laughs> no, no, it's it's tough, man. Because mo most of the, um, the the volunteer team, if not the entire volunteer team, are so passionate about what they do, mm. you know, and it comes and it comes forth in their and their effort. And their, I mean, we were, uh, for example, you know, some of the team and I, we were down in Mississippi this past weekend working on something for You Are the Power. Mm -hmm. We get back into town um, and we immediately start working on the Georgia causes again. It's like, I know we only slept about five or six hours during the weekend, but there's work to be done. You know, so people are passionate about this. It translates in the e emails and the phone conversations that you have with the elected officials. And I, I hope they pick up on that. You know, I hope the elected officials pick up on the passion in, in, in the voices. And that's, that's just testament to the to the volunteer team and how professional they are. For sure, for sure. Um, well, let's get into the topic of today. I'd like to watch about the first minute or so of of a video that Spike posted, if that's sure. all right with you. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Let's let's intro the the topic um, with a little Spike Cohen video. This is Brady and Carrie Timms with their newborn son Jameson. Two years ago, the Georgia state government stole Jameson from Brady and Carrie because he has a medical condition and the government doesn't want to admit it. Their family has been fractured ever since, and Brady and Carrie still face the possibility of criminal charges, despite the fact that they still haven't been indicted in two years. If you're like me, you're probably wondering how this is even possible. Well, Jameson first started having health issues at six weeks old. Brady and Carrie would rush him to his pediatrician for answers every time anything happened. The first time these loving parents sought treatment for their sick son, they went to Erlinger Baroness Hospital in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Blood work was completed there, and the Tims were told that everything was normal. 
They later discovered that doctors at Erlinger Baroness had lied to them, but more on that in a bit. James. This little intro um, to, to what's going on with the Tim's family. Um, yeah. yeah, and he does later on. That's a, about a seven minute video for those just listening. I would highly advise go to Spike Cohen's um, Facebook page or you are the power to, to watch that. Um, and you'll get a nice succinct version of what me and Ryan are about to talk about for a little while. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, it was. Um, so believe it or not, there's so many parallels to uh, the Brady and Carrie Timms case and, and the Hernandez family case. As mm -hmm. a matter of fact, the, the Timms case was brought to our attention by members of the volunteer team on the Hernandez case. Mm -hmm. And so um, we reached out to, to Brady and Carrie, just a real quick introduction to ourselves and said, hey, these are some services that, that we can offer. Would you be interested? Um, we let them know that that uh, we had done a MIDI vetting of their case. Um, mm -hmm. I reviewed some materials and some other members on the volunteer team had reviewed some of their materials that we had found online. So we just set up a conversation, a phone call with uh, with Brady and Carrie, uh, really just via Zoom. And so, um, I mean, almost immediately, Jake, um, my heart broke. I mean, it just absolutely was devastating. Um, Carrie started emailing me just hundreds if not thousands of pages of medical documentation on their baby um that that lawfully and medically explains you know the conditions that he presented um when they took him to the hospital as well as the the explanation for the complications that carrie had during pregnancy so mm -hmm. to, just to back up a little bit um you know brady and carrie they live here in georgia they live in gordon county um they are your atypical stereotypical just good people, good husband and wife, um, great, great parents. I mean, just a, a loving family, a support network. If you wanted to like stereotypical, um, just good Southern family, this, this is, this is Brady and, and, and Carrie Timms. Yeah. Um, they, they had a, a baby, um, and, uh, during pregnancy, you know, Carrie was experiencing some complications. Um, she, she really couldn't explain them. Uh, after J after Jameson was born, their baby was born, um, about six weeks old, he started having, uh, just medical issues, unexplained medical issues, um, whether it's just reddening of the skin, hands and feet, um, swelling of his legs. Uh, he was just uncomfortable crying. So of course, Brady and Carrie being the loving parents that they are, they, they brought their baby to the doctor. They brought their baby to the pediatrician and said, you know, Hey, what's going on? You know, this, something's just not right with our baby. Um, each and every time it was like, Oh, the baby's fine. You know, this is, you know, this, that, and the other, not a whole lot of testing was done, whatever the case may be. Um, finally, uh, they ended up bringing their baby to, uh, Erlinger Baroness, uh, in Chattanooga. Um, again, uh, presenting the same problems, you know, just reddening of the skin, swollen joints, um, kind of fussy complaining, things like that. Mm -hmm. it's, that's, you know, a six week old baby telling their mom, Hey, you know, Hey, there's, there's something wrong. Um, the, the doctors at uh, Erlinger Baroness took some blood, did some real quick workups, said, hey, no issues, no problems, uh, and basically sent them home. So they ended up, uh, at the request of a pediatrician, taking the baby, taking Jameson to CHOA in Atlanta, Children's Healthcare of Atlanta. Um, they did some x-rays. And if, if you think you know where the story's going, it's, it's about to get worse. Um, <laughs> so, you know, they they the x-rays uh, show that, Baby Jameson has various uh, rib 
fractures uh, that are healing, various stages of healing, much uh, like the Hernandez baby, much like um, Matt and Tucky's baby. Mm -hmm. So immediately, uh, child abuse uh, physician uh, says Jameson's Jameson's been abused. You know, this this sweet, innocent little seven week old baby um, is being abused by their loving parents. Mm -hmm. So right then and there, um, authorities seize Jameson. I mean, they literally take Jameson from Carrie's arms and they get law enforcement and hospital security to escort Brady and Carrie out of the hospital. Carrie is hysterical. I mean, screaming, blood curdling screams like nurses from around the hospital and around the nurses station are trying to figure out what's going on. Why is this mother screaming? She's begging and pleading for answers. And the hospital is is taking their baby away. They, they won't. The hospital uh, Choa will not show Brady or Carrie the x-rays where this alleged abuse or these uh, fractures are, are shown are being shown. Um, and DFAC says, you know, you're you're now a child abuser. So what do they do? They call law enforcement. Right. So law enforcement, um, they arrest Brady and Carrie. They charge them with various felonies, uh, child abuse. And uh, two years later, Jake, two years later, Brady and Carrie have yet to be indicted for these felony offenses. So in between all this, in between all this waiting, um, they petition the court. Uh, they say, look, there's something wrong with my baby. I know, like, number one, we didn't abuse our child. And number two, there's something medically wrong with my child. Um, they take the baby, uh, up to Boston Children's Hospital with a, with an order signed by the judge with the understanding that, um, defects has to be present during these medical procedures, which of course Brady and Carrie agreed to because they have nothing to hide. You know, they want their baby diagnosed. They know that there's something medically wrong with their child. So while they're at the hospital, uh, a, a specialist and actually, uh, a, a world-renowned doctor, diagnoses Carrie with um, EDS and diagnoses Jameson with EDS, uh, Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. So this, this medical condition, just like with the Hernandez case, explains the symptoms that Carrie experienced during pregnancy. And it explains all the symptoms that Jameson presented um, in Chattanooga and in Atlanta. So, I mean, it, Brady and Carrie at that point are elated. You know, they have a diagnosis of their baby. They understand what's going to happen. The state is going to return their child back to them and they can move on with their lives. They get back to Georgia and DFAX doubles down. DFAX doubles down and says, well, yes, your child does have a medical condition, but that doesn't mean that you didn't abuse your child. And so they refuse to acknowledge the fact that Jameson was diagnosed with a, a medical condition independent of anything that Choa was saying, um, DFAX was physically present in Boston when both Carrie and Jameson were diagnosed with EDS and DFAX doubles down. So Brady and Carrie don't want their son in foster care. So they sign over temporary legal guardianship to families to prevent their baby from being put in Georgia's foster care system. Um, Brady and Carrie are on bond. They have some of the most restrictive bond conditions I've seen for a case like this. They're not allowed to be around any other children, which, which is a, a terrible situation for Brady because from a previous relationship, he has a son. Brady's not even allowed to see his, his son from a previous relationship. And that son and Jameson haven't been able to live together in the same house for two years. 
So this is being drug out in legal limbo for two years. You got DFACS refusing, just flat out refusing to acknowledge a diagnosis that clearly shows that Brady and Carrie are innocent, that they have not abused their baby and that there's a lawful medical explanation for what's going on. And so that's what we're fighting on right now. I mean, we've started an email campaign. Um, we've gone public with this. It's drawn national attention. Um, we've started emailing the acting district attorney in Gordon County, Earl Newton. Um, we've emailed the chief of police in, in Calhoun, Georgia, Tony Powell. It's Tony Powell's organization who um, sought the arrest warrants and got the arrest warrants on Brady and Kerry. And the sad part is, Jake, um, law enforcement and DFACS didn't do their uh, due diligence. You know, they didn't conduct independent investigative uh, measures. They did not undertake any independent investigative measures to confirm what the Choa doctor had said, right? So Choa says, you're abusing your baby. And they rely solely on that uh, opinion of that one doctor. Um, and by the way, it's the same doctor who's involved in the Hernandez case. So, <laughs> I mean, you can't make this stuff up, Jake. It's, it's, it's heartbreaking that this family is having to go through this and they've had to go through this for two agonizing years. I mean, they're facing... Uh, decades in prison for crimes they didn't commit. Yeah, um, Their baby is not allowed to live with them. Um, Brady and Carrie have not. Now, you've got to remember, when the state took Jameson from Brady and Carrie, he was he was an infant. He was, a, he was a, a, a baby, six, seven weeks old. They still have his room in their house. They still have the crib. They still have everything decorated as, in the room as if he was a seven-month-old baby. They still have his Christmas presents wrapped and in his room from when he was taken from them before Christmas uh, while they were at Choa. I mean, this family has not um, been able to move on with their lives and the state is further harming not only Jameson, but is causing like unnecessary mental anguish and financial burden on the family. They're over $50,000 in debt um, in legal fees. And that, and, that, and that amount just grows daily because they're, they're still having to fight for their innocence. And it's, it's terrible because I say that because the state is saying, Brady and Carrie, you are guilty and you have to prove that you are innocent when it should be the other way around. The state should say, you know, hey, look, this we've made this mistake. You clearly have a plausible medical explanation for what happened. And yet you have an acting district attorney up there in Earl Newton who seems to be uh, intent on prosecuting them. And you have defects who are just absolutely refusing to to listen to reason. I mean, that is wild. Um, I've, I've, I mean, I have so many questions about this case. First yeah. off, um, are we allowed to know what the, the Chattanooga hospital lied to them about? And yeah, if it, if it ever came out as to why they did that. So uh, the lie was that Jameson's blood uh, was, was normal, right? So that the, the the clinicians in uh, Chattanooga told Brady and, and <clears throat> excuse me, Carrie that the blood work for baby Jameson was normal. Mm -hmm. And so after the fact, when they petitioned the court to get the records uh, from Chattanooga, they find out that his blood results were abnormal and that signs were pointing at that time at six weeks old um, to EDS, to, to Jameson yeah. having EDS. And so that was hidden from them along. And you couple that with um, when they come to Choa and the doctors at Choa say, we see these, these, rib fractures in various stages of healing, but we're not going to allow you to see those x-rays. They hide the, the evidence that they're accusing them 
they're accusing them of child abuse and they're hiding the evidence of of that child abuse from the from the parents so it's it's like a it's, it's like a it just compounds the situation and and progressively makes it worse yeah and what i don't understand is like why they would hide the x-rays that that doesn't seem to even if the parents were abusing their child i don't understand how hiding the x-rays not allowing the parents to see the x-rays would would be detrimental to the state's case whatsoever like right like if they actually had a case it would seem that x-rays wouldn't prove anything like for or against the parents it's just right these are the facts this is what's happened correct um, and they're and the and the tims aren't disputing the facts you know yeah. right they're saying they're not saying our baby didn't have um a rib fracture right what they're saying is it likely occurred in utero as a result of this genetic disease that both the mother and the baby have so right that's where you have Choa saying, no, it's abuse and defects saying, no, it's abuse. And then you have independent doctors uh, outside of Choa are saying it's, it's absolutely not abuse. And mm -hmm. the state's just not listening to reason for whatever reason. If a Choa doctor says something, then another independent doctor, uh, th their opinion is not allowed to be heard to, to refute that. That's wild. That makes no sense. It makes no sense. It also, it confuses me as to why, I don't I just don't understand the reasoning of the Chattanooga hospital not telling them that the that the res blood results were different like I, or were abnormal like what it, what would be their reasoning were they intending to send them to Choa in Atlanta you know I, I thought about that myself Jake and so I always like to see the good in people right so maybe it was just they made a mistake they overlooked something and then after the fact didn't want to uh, acknowledge that they had made a mistake right, right? because there's so much scrutiny right now on cases such as this, um, especially in, in Georgia, because it's, it's been brought to the forefront of conversation. So it could have been something as simple as just a misdiagnosis. It could have been something as simple as, you know, hey, we, we just overlooked this, or it could be something nefarious. We don't know, but I, I, I like to, to, to lean towards the side of, um, it was just probably just an honest mistake. Yeah, that's fair. Um, and that's probably a better way to go about life than being cynical and thinking everybody's out to get you. <laughs> no. And, and, and there are times, man. So, you, you know, it just as well as I do. So dealing with the government, like you, you have to be cynical, you know, you, you have, you can't trust everything that they're saying, but right. Um, in this case, I think that misdiagnosis up in, in, in Chattanooga led to a lot of confusion and led to additional heartache here, here in hundred percent. Yeah. Um, let's talk about these child abuse pediatricians because yeah. The idea of having a pediatrician there who specifically focuses on child abuse seems like you're taking a hammer and that hammer can only see anything else as a nail. Yeah. So they're like, are there statistics on how often they don't decide that it was child abuse or is it too new of a position or like what's going on with these this new child abuse pediatrician? It's a relatively new uh position. And so one of the things that we hope to, to gain through a series of open records requests, specifically when it comes to, to CHOA here in Atlanta, is the number of cases that are diagnosed by these CAPs, by these child abuse physicians as abuse, um, that result in successful prosecution, meaning that are these instances of abuse versus them misdiagnosing uh, a baby. 
and accusing the parents of abuse. So some of that information is is hidden. And so we, we hope to find that through a series of open records requests. Um, what we have discovered, uh, what we meaning you are the power have discovered specifically across the country is some of these caps are being compensated. Uh, they actually receive bonuses for when they diagnose a child as having been abused, um, regardless of the outcome. So there are some doctors uh, specifically about a case that you and I'll talk briefly about here in a little bit. Um, uh, she's from uh, Wisconsin and Alaska. She's now in Florida. These doctors are um, misdiagnosing babies, but then when they be, when they come under internal uh, investigation by the hospital, they're allowed to resign in lieu of termination and just bounce around from hospital to hospital with uh, questionable backgrounds and, and questionable behavior. And so some of these doctors have been sued multiple times, uh, both civilly and in federal court for Fourth Amendment right violations. And they just bounce around from hospital to hospital. And it just compounds the situation because their track record of misdiagnosing abuse is basically hidden from the general public. Either that, Jake, or the hospitals that hire them are just choosing to ignore it um, and they're just hiring them anyways. Wow. That's a horrible system. It's, I, it's so flawed. You're incentivizing people to, you're incentivizing doctors to rule that the parents abuse their children so that you get a bonus or a pay raise or whatever. Like that. Yeah. That yeah. is. <laughs> it's so like a, it's a thousand dollar bonus. Like in some instances, it's like a 700 to a thousand dollar bonus. If, if a doctor. Um, that's diagnosis. wild. That was, that was the same thing that happened during COVID. They would incentivize the, the doctors to say it was caused by COVID, like death caused by COVID. They get like a $9,000 or some, some specific amount of money for the hospital because it was a COVID death. So um, I think, yeah, it's safe to say that's a horrible way to to approach medicine. <laughs> yeah, it's Especially when it comes to diagnosing something where the end result is a parent losing their child. Yeah, I mean, doctors and and physicians, you know, they they swear an oath to first do no harm, right? And in the in the cases like this, that's all they're doing is harming these babies and harming these families. Um, now, now I understand this, Jake, and I know you do too. Um, there are parents who abuse their children. Like there's just no doubt about that. There are parents who abuse their children. However, when the state gets it wrong, they get it really wrong and they destroy these families. Yeah. Um, they, they refuse to listen to reason. Um, I mean, they, they double down um, and just absolutely, you know, if, because some of this is not, some of these, these cases are resolved in, in, in juvenile court or in civil court, right? So the burden of proof is is a lot less than in criminal chart in, in a criminal case. So if you're talking about in juvenile court, it's the preponderance of the evidence. Like, is it more probable than not that these parents abuse their child versus the burden of proof in in criminal court, which is beyond reasonable doubt? So a lot of the times, defects who refuses to um, acknowledge that parents aren't abusing their children rely on the, the, the sole testimony of, of one doctor. And so you might have the family in their defense bring three or four doctors in the contrary to say that, you know, these children aren't being abused. But then the judge just simply ignores that and says it's more likely that the CHOA doctors are the ones that we should believe. And then they just fracture these families from that point forward. Wow. Wow. I mean, yeah, I don't even know what to say to that. <laughs> and there's no oversight. Yeah. There's yeah, no I mean, oversight. And, and I mean, government tends to do this too. It's, it's, it, 
there's no real oversight. The people who do a terrible job, their departments end up getting more money because that's what they think the cause is, is they're not funded well enough. So they end up hiring more terrible people um, to do whatever job that they're doing. Right. So there's going to end up being more of these caps, more of these child abuse pediatricians than there were before, Yeah, uh, which is a massive problem. Imagine, imagine Jake, you know, defects here in Georgia in and around the time of the pandemic when it was really kicking off and during the pandemic, uh, defects lost almost 1800 children that were in their care. So let that number sink in for a minute. 1,800 <laughs> children. Define, define lost. What does that mean? Like they can't find them. Like they, either the children have, uh, they were old enough to leave on their own while in state's care and disappeared or if they were under state's care and uh, maybe they were living in, in a hotel with a family, maybe they're, they've gone, they've disappeared. And so imagine if you will, um, this organization who've lost 1800 children over the past three years while in their care, um, we're supposed to believe that they get it right all the time and that their defects investigators and that their defects supervisors cannot make mistakes. They cannot get it wrong. Um, and then when you point and you show them physical evidence, like you have gotten this case wrong, you are absolutely 110% wrong in your assertion that these, these parents are abusing their kids. They just ignore it because there's no oversight. There's no one who um, is going to call them out. You know, we've sent emails to the governor's office. We've sent emails to the head of DFACS here in Georgia. We've sent emails to regional directors. We've attended conferences and tried to talk to people um, in the legislative body here in Georgia to try to draw attention to this. And most of our emails either go ignored or we get the canned response of, you know, thank you for this. We'll look into it. Or this matter is under investigation. We can't comment on it. Um, so we're just trying our best to draw as much attention as we can to this problem. Uh, the two uh, U.S. senators uh, here in Georgia, we've reached out to their offices and, you know, they've been receptive to what we had to say. As a matter of fact, uh, John Offsaw's office, uh, you know, he's actually one of the, the U.S. senators who's investigating those 1,800 missing children. Like there's a committee wow. that he's chairing up. So, you know, his office has been receptive. It's just unfortunate that the governor and it's unfortunate that the head of DFACS, uh, Candace Brochy or Candace Broach, um, I'm not sure how to correctly pronounce her last name, B-R-O-C-E, um, you know, she hides behind the bureaucratic process. I mean, she's a political appointee. She she was appointed by Governor Kemp. She worked with Governor Kemp when uh, he was a Secretary of State. She was a, she's an attorney over the Elections Division. She really doesn't have any experience um, with DFACS or with Department of Human Services, but yet she's in charge of that entire organization. And her office seems to be getting it wrong more times than they get it right. Yeah, no kidding. Um, how... Do you know how many children defects has in their system right now? I, I don't, um, but I did talk to one official who told me that um, as of right now, I believe there are only two children left living in a hotel, like with their, with their families. And so whether or not that's true, consider the source that's coming from a, a defects employee. I do not know how many kids are currently in Georgia's foster care system or receiving defects benefits. I don't gotcha. have that information. Gotcha. Um, all right. Where is, uh, where's the Tim's family at right now? Like what, what's, what's the, what's their current status and how can, how can we help? Sure. We are um, just, just went public with our case. 
Mm -hmm. um, we're still on the, the email campaign right now. So if you go to youarethepower.net slash TIMS, mm -hmm. um, there's a landing page specifically for them. And it tells you how you can get involved. It tells you if you know if you want to send an email, please send an email using that template. If you want to donate to uh, the Tim's family, uh, the donation goes directly to them. Um, it's money that they're using to uh, pay for their legal defense. I know Brady and Carrie are both working multiple jobs in order to keep uh, a roof over their heads right now. And so any any financial contribution that someone can make, it's going to go straight to them and it's going to be beneficial uh, in the help to reunite their family. Heck yeah. Heck yeah. Um, so you said they're, they're about two years into this. They haven't actually been, um, what was it charged or no, they've been charged. They haven't they've been, been arrested. They've not been formally indicted. So the grand jury has not heard their case. And what's even more sad about the situation, honestly, is um, if the district attorney wanted to prolong this agony, you know, he could, uh, these are felony charges and he would have four years to indict them. They're just over two years right now and they're still in, in legal limbo. Now we, we started emailing uh, the acting district attorney, Earl Newton in, in, in Gordon County, and we got responses, you know, to his credit, he responded to our emails. And so uh, on the template there, one of the things that you'll see that we're asking for is we, we know that the elements of the crimes for which uh, Brady and Kerry have been charged are not met. There's, there's no way in the world uh, a jury of their peers in Gordon County are going to convict them for child abuse. There's just so much evidence to the contrary. And a district attorney has to know that, you know, most district attorneys, when they take a case to trial, they do it because they know they're going to win. Right. They, they can tout that when they want to get reelected. You know, I've got a 95 or 98% conviction rate. Um, in this instance, um, I bet you a paycheck that, that they're going to lose this case. Like they just will absolutely lose this case if they try to take it to trial. Our hope is that um, either A, if the grand jury is presented in um, presented this case for possible prosecution, our hope is that they see through it. They see through the nonsense that the state is trying to uh, perpetuate and say that Brady and Kerry were involved in this or abuse their children. So we hope that they'll return a no bill. Uh, verdict or we just hope that the district attorney just outright drops the charges he can take he can take this to a judge have it sign off and have the case have the case dismissed we're hoping that the district attorney will do the right thing and that it will help uh, reunite brady and carrie because outside these criminal charges that's really the only thing that they have hanging over their heads right now and it's been two years they can petition a court yeah um to have have their baby returned to them now it's it's going to cost a little bit of money which is one of the reasons why we're trying to raise funds. I and mean, you're looking at probably an additional six to $10,000 that they're going to have to spend to get their baby back. Um, but that's what we're hoping to mitigate and offset those offset that cost by raising money for them. Wow. That, that is such a long time to you know, just a large amount of money yeah. to, to have to put into something just to get your kid back. That should never have been taken from you to begin with. Yeah. Um, Wow. Well, yeah, um, we're, we'll put the website description in the, or we'll put the website in the description of the episode. Um, so people can go click on that and go donate, send emails, all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, we appreciate that, Jake. Yeah, absolutely. Anything we can do to help. Um, yeah. One of, one of my big topics for this year is going to be medical freedom. And so this, this will be, I'm, I'm glad to, to have you are the power around so that we have some of these, really big stories in the state of Georgia 
to, yeah. to talk about, which is fantastic. Yeah. Um, I mean, not fantastic that they're happening, but fantastic that we can shed some light on them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, and you said uh, you have an announcement or an update on a new case. Is that correct? We do, yeah. So um, we haven't gone public with it yet. So just for the topic of this conversation or just for this conversation, I'm going to refer to the family as the Smith family, uh, okay. even though that's not their name. So, again, uh, this is going to be a DFAX uh, cap case. It's going to be um, in Georgia. It's in South Georgia, uh, Southeast Georgia. And this family was brought to our attention by the Hernandez family and by the Tim's family. So imagine that you're, you have those families who have been ripped apart by DFAX and Choa reaching out to us saying, please help this family as well. Like that's just speaks to the heart that these families have and what they're, what they're enduring. So the Smith family, um, it's, it's uh, equally as troubling as, as the Hernandez and, in the Tim's case, I mean, they have, they have three babies. All their babies were born by, uh, in, in vitro. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is a couple who were not only high school sweethearts, but they, they met in middle school. They've been together since middle school. They've been married for, um, 21 years. Their three babies were born, uh, via IVF. Um, their first baby who's, she's four years old now, um, dismissed, said, Hey, to their four-year-old, uh, what do you think about, you know, having a brother or a sister, you know, big sister says, yeah, this is great. You know, I want to be, you know, I want to be a little, I want to be a big sister. I want a little brother and, and a little sister. And so they, they go through IVF again and find out that they're pregnant with twins. And not only they're pregnant with twins, they're pregnant with a little boy and a little girl. Wow. <laughs> so, uh, the babies, you know, they, they're in separate placentas. And so the, the boy Christian, um, I'm just going to call him Christian for argument's sake. He's, he's not growing. I mean, he's growing and he's, and he's healthy. And then, um, baby Anna, uh, we're going to call baby Anna. She, she's not growing. Like she's not developing. Um, the doctor, as a matter of fact, tells, um, tells the Smiths if, if we try to deliver, um, your daughter naturally, it's probably going to break every bone in her body. Um, so she, so they take the babies, the doctors take the babies um, by emergency C-section. Uh, the little girl weighs just over three pounds, not quite four pounds. She spends four years, uh, 42, 42 days of, of her life, the first 42 days of her life um, in a NICU. Hmm. Um, she's finally released to go home. Um, and she starts presenting with symptoms eerily similar to the Hernandez and the Thames baby. Mm-hmm. Parents obviously are upset. They're worried. Um, they take the baby to the emergency room in, in South Georgia, and the doctor says, I see some rib fractures in various stages of healing. You need to take, you need to take your baby to um, a children's hospital in Florida. So they do. And there's a cap down there that they run into who has been either fired or resigned from four different children's hospitals for either lying about abuse bullying her staff to say abuse occurred when none occurred or fostering some type of hostile work environment. As a matter of fact, one of the last positions, this particular cap held, her name is Dr. Barbara Knox. Every single one of her coworkers and staff resigned in protest because of the way she was treating them. Um, but yet this doctor was allowed to go to work for a prestigious hospital in Jacksonville. And so 
the Smiths end up taking their baby there and they run into Dr. Knox, who says that the baby's been abused. Now, mind you, the, the opinion of Dr. Knox is that um, baby Anna was either drop kicked or punched or hit. Now, she weighed four pounds, Jake, four pounds. Um, and so they're, the doctors, like the independent doctors are saying, you know, Dr. Cox, you got it. Uh, yeah, Dr. Knox, you got it wrong. Like we diagnosed these issues in utero. This is not abuse. So what does Dr. Knox do? She contacts DFACS. What does DFACS do? Seize all three of the Smith babies. Seizes them. Um, two seven-week-old uh, babies and one four-year-old uh, little girl are seized and put into state's custody, much like what, what happened with the Hernandez and Tim's family. So the Smiths, what do they do? They sign over parental rights or temporary legal guardianship to family to keep their babies out of foster care. And, you know, here we are. Uh, we should go public with this case relatively soon. And they're facing the same legal struggles, the same financial struggles struggles as the Hernandez family and the Tim's family. They're they're going in debt to try to do, to defend their name, try to defend um, their actions. I mean, Jake, these families spent. 14 years trying to have a baby, you know, spend hundreds of thousands of dollars for IVF treatments. And when they finally have babies, the state rips them away and says, no, you're abusing, you're abusing one of your children. So equally as horrific, um, we started a soft email campaign with the uh, elected officials um, in South Georgia where they live. Um, we've started writing letters to um, the head of DFATS here in Georgia again, reminding her that her organization has once again, gotten it wrong and are causing more harm to babies um, yeah. in, in Georgia. The district attorney um, who's handling this case and we'll go public with it soon so I can give you all this information. But the district attorney who's handling this case has been receptive to our emails. You know, we same thing that we we basically said with the Tims and the Hernandez case. It's like, you know, the elements of these crimes are not going to be met. A jury of their peers is not going to um, convict them. As a matter of fact, uh, Mr. Smith has not even been indicted yet. He's just been arrested and he's in legal limbo as well, much like Brady and Carrie. Wow. Um, that, I mean, it, it, it's, it's unfathomable to think that this actually like happens seemingly regularly. Like, yes. Yeah. It doesn't seem like an anomaly. I mean, this is three cases that I've been shown. I mean, Two of them have been happening for a while. Yeah. Um, but like, why do you think it is that people don't know about this? Like I'd never heard of medical kidnapping or anything like this before. Um, why do you think it is that no one knows about these kinds of things? I think a lot of it is um, once parents have their children seized, they want to do everything in their power to get them back, but they don't want to draw attention to what's going on because they fear retribution from defects. They fear retribution from law enforcement. When you call a government official out, when you, ex when you show that they have um, possibly acted in malice, mm -hmm. that they have not done the job that they were either elected to do or sworn to do, um, when they're causing harm to families rather than protecting families, they take offense to that. Um, they absolutely take offense to that. And so, the fear is real for some of these families. You know, they do fear retribution. So a lot of them don't go public. And um, sometimes they're almost 
it almost feels like these families are being beat into submission. Like they just going along with whatever the state says because they want their babies back. Yeah. And it's just these few families who have the courage to stand up. As a matter of fact, Jake, um, there's an investigative reporter in Atlanta. She's um, uncovered either 12 to 15 other cases here in Georgia, this exact same uh, issues. And she's going to go uh, public and publish her story in April. And so I'm hoping that with, with that report and with that story, it's going to get the governor's attention. It's going to get people like Choa's attention. It's going to get DFAC's attention. Um, you know, I, I look at it like this. Um, if, if an innocent man or woman spends one day in jail, one day in prison for a crime they didn't commit, that's abhorrent. That should never happen. Yes. If you have multiple families, innocent husbands, innocent, innocent wives, innocent mothers, innocent fathers, who are being accused of uh, some of the most egregious crimes that you can commit against another person, uh, actually physically harming your child. Um, and they've been kept in legal limo, legal limbo for years, for years. And there's no real way for them to fight back because they fear retribution, right? So that has to change. At some point, you know, the governor, at some point, the General Assembly, at some point, the head of DFACS, at some point, somebody in Atlanta at a higher up in an office somewhere in a high in a in a high office building in Atlanta needs to be held accountable for their actions because um, it is from the top down. Yeah, there's regional directors and yeah, there's case managers and yeah, there's ADAs who are handling these cases. But who are the law enforcement officials, supervisors that are signing off on these reports? Who are the judges that are signing off on these arrest warrants? Who are the ADAs that are taking these cases to the chief ADA or to the DA and saying, I want to prosecute these people without looking at all the evidence that they have before them? Like, why is the governor appointing um, people in, in positions like DFACs who have zero experience doing that type of work? I mean, it just is yeah. systemic. It adds to the problem. And then no one wants to be held accountable for their actions. Yep. Yep. And this, I mean, it, that's what leads to you feeling helpless when the government gets involved in anything. It's because there's no one to actually pin the blame on because everyone just passes the blame from one person to the next or just completely disregards what you're saying. Or you can't, you don't even know who's involved. You can't even get uh, in contact with the person who's signing these documents or who's making right. these laws or um, it, it just makes you feel extremely helpless as a citizen, um, which is, you know, not to turn this into pure politics, but it's why the Libertarian Party wants to dwindle the size of government. You, if, you, yeah. if you're able to actually reach out to your local government and know the people in the government on a like personal basis, on an individual basis, it's more likely your community will thrive and your neighborhood will thrive and everybody will try to at least try to live in harmony. Um, and when you get these big bureaucratic faceless organizations that have no accountability, then you're going to get a lot of pain. You're going to get a lot of people who, um, who just don't feel like they can do anything to help themselves. And so they just go along with whatever the government tells them to do. Um, and and the government, you know, just as well as I do, they don't always give sound advice. <laughs> and so it's it just, you know, when when folks reach out to us, when folks reach out to um, to you are the power, 
Mm -hmm. phone call, email, whatever the case may be, asking for our help. You know, like what you're talking about. One of the first things that we ask is, you know, is this a local issue? Is this, you know, because we don't do national politics. We try to keep everything local. Is this a local issue? And we'll ask them, Jake. We'll say, no. Is is there a person to support? Is there a family here that we need to support? Is there a small small organization that we can support? Mm-hmm. And then we have to to vet the case. And we'll talk about like, uh, well, is what you're telling us true? Is this something that we can verify through independent investigation? And then the most important thing is, um, will this story garner empathy? Right? Mm-hmm. Um, is it going to pull on your heartstrings? Is it going to pull on others' heartstrings? And then is the community going to agree that the issue is a bad thing and they're not going to want to come to the fence of, of the bad actor? Mm-hmm. Um, and so if you look at all the cases that and all the causes that we're working currently in Georgia, you know, they meet that criteria. I right. mean, if you can't, as a, a human being, read about the Hernandez case or the Thames case or the Smith case, you can't read about that without being uh, impacted by that story. Like it touches your heart, it touches your soul that that Georgians are having to go through this, but Georgians are having to go through this because their government is out of control. Their government is unchecked. Yeah. There's no checks and balances for, for what these bad actors are doing. And if you try to hold them accountable, they either you know get shuffled around from position to position, or in some cases, no, no action is taken against them. No adverse action is taken against them. Yeah. Well, we appreciate the work you're doing, you and folks that you are the power. Um, yeah. Uh, whatever we can do to help, um, we're going to post the, the website links in the description. Um, is there any other ways that people can can help uh, y'all's organization? Yeah. If you, if you don't mind, uh, sending them to our, our main website, uh, youretherpower.net. Mm-hmm. Um, and they can join as a, as a member. There's different levels where you can join. There's a free membership. There's um, a $50 annual, $100 annual, $500 annual membership. Um, what you can do as well is if, you know, if you're in Georgia, Jake, um, send me an email or if you join uh, for the free membership with You Are the Power, um, mm-hmm. we'll send out a monthly newsletter to let you know what's going on in Georgia, what causes we are championing right now and how you can get involved. And it's not always us uh, looking for uh, financial contributions to these causes. It's just, hey, are you willing to send an email on behalf of this family? Are you willing to make a phone call on behalf of this family? And I know people might think, oh, one phone call, one email is probably not going to make a difference. But I assure you, they add up. They absolutely Mm -hmm. add up. And that's the easiest way to get involved, honestly, is to just reach out to us and say, hey, how can I help? And I promise you, uh, we'll, we'll we'll put you to work. I mean, there's so much uh, injustice going on here in Georgia right now. Um, we're keeping ourselves quite busy. And so anyone who's willing to, to work on behalf of a family or to send an email or make a phone call, like I said, we'll absolutely welcome them uh, on board the team. Awesome. Well, Ryan, I appreciate you coming on, man. This, is, this has been great. Um, anybody out there, go to their website. Um, go sign up for membership. Go email somebody. I know not everybody can do things financially these days. Um, so just go email your reps. Email the people on on their website, on, on the Tim's family um, page for, for You Are The Power. Just communicate with your local reps because that, honestly, it really does help. I've seen it firsthand. It's crazy how little, how few phone calls they need to get in order to actually get their mind changed and get them focusing on an issue. Yep. Um, so highly encourage you to do that. Um, yeah, 
Ryan, looking forward to having you back on to give us some positive updates in the future. Yeah, absolutely, Jake. Thank you so much for having me on. And thank you so much for drawing, drawing attention to these causes that are so important to us here in Georgia. Yeah, anytime, anytime. All right. All right. Thanks, brother. I appreciate it. Thank you. See you. All right. right. So there you have it. That was Ryan Ralston from You Are the Power. Um, talking about the Tim's family. Again, go to their website. They do a ton of good work. It is not that financially prohibitive to join their um, join their organization. Um, and if you can't do it financially, again, I highly recommend you sending some emails and and calling some folks because it does so much more good than you could really understand. Um, not, I mean, the mere fact that most people are hesitant to email or call their local reps should tell you that they don't get a lot of these phone calls. And so you don't have to have a ton of people calling or emailing them in order to make a difference and make them actually think about the topics that you want them to think about and the cases and the individuals and all these kinds of things. So get out there, do some good, spread some liberty, um, help reunite kids with their parents and parents with their kids. Um, yeah, that'll do it. Uh, make sure you tune in to Liberty Libations every Thursday night at 8 p.m. and come back next week for more free Georgia podcast every Monday at 8 p.m. Peace.